Welcome to the aggressive life. I say it all the time, but I, I really, I really mean it this time. Today is something different for you. You know, part of a part of the phrase of aggressive that I like. We've covered this before. It isn't about physically having your way over somebody. It doesn't play into squashing somebody. That's not the form of aggression we're talking about. We're talking just about being in movement. And I think why I say, oh, this is new today, we haven't done this before, is, is I'm constantly moving, trying to think of new things that are stimulating for the podcast, thinking of ideas that I don't know that we ever planned on doing, but now they sound like a great idea. Let's make the aggressive move and push on it. So that's one today, because this is the first time ever that here in The Aggressive Life, we're going to replay an episode from another podcast. Yes. Recently, my good friend and Aggressive Life alumni, Kirk Perry, who was on a podcast called Learnings from Leaders, and the podcast features alumni from Procter & Gamble. And in the conversation, they're talking about personal stories and learnings from all kinds of things. And Kirk ended up talking about how he lives and talks about faith in the business world. He is a business stud, senior level, and in a time and era where everyone maybe understandably is afraid to bring their faith in the marketplace and have any conversation of that three-letter word, that is G-O-D, Kirk flexes his spiritual muscles a lot, and he is a top dog in business. He's the president and CEO of IRI, a big data and analytics firm. Previously, he was president of global client and agency solutions for Google. Big, big, big deal job at Google. And then he spent 16 years before at Procter & Gamble, ending his run there as the president of the global family care. Uh, the host from this podcast, I don't know them. I've gotten to email them a little bit because like, dudes, wow, Rahman and Rajiv, they invited Kirk on their show to talk about the culture's most taboo topics, faith at work. Uh, the guy who was interviewing him uh, is a Hindu. He was open to hear about Kirk's faith. It was really, really fascinating. And I found myself going, man, I, I need to have Kirk on this podcast and just cover the same ground. And I realized, I don't know that he's going to possibly cover it any better than he is right now because I find myself cheering as he's talking. And so he reached out and asked for permission to actually do it right now. Ramon and Rajiv do a great job introducing Kirk, so we're going to let them take it from here. If you like what you hear, go check out Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts. Here you go. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. I'm Raman Segal, recovering marketer. And I'm Rajiv Sethyal, the funny Indian. Raman and I both got our start at PNG, the Procter and Gamble company, where we had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at PNG. In this series, through conversations with fellow PNG alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know or want to know more about. It's kind of like bringing a microphone to a cup of coffee. On today's show, we're talking to P&G alumni leader Kirk Perry. Kirk is the president and chief executive officer at IRI, 
which many of you will know is the company that deals in big data, analytics, and insights that power action and growth. Prior to that, Kirk was at Google since 2013 as president of brand solutions. And prior to that, Kirk was at P&G for various roles across marketing and general management, including the president of Global Family Care and six years of his career in Asia with three-year assignments in both South Korea and Japan. Him and his family are very active in giving back and supporting their communities, including the University of Cincinnati. And he served on the boards for the JM Smucker Company, Elf Cosmetics, the March of Dimes, and the Ronald McDonald House. So he's just really involved professionally and personally in his community. Kirk's definitely an in-the-moment guy, giving his all to whatever he's involved with. He makes it very clear that you've got to solve the business issue, the business deadline. But he's always taking a step back to put things in perspective. We invited Kirk back on to discuss the topic of faith, normally a taboo topic in the workplace. But I love what Kirk had to say about how his faith has helped him navigate both his personal and his professional life. Let's dive right in. We hope you'll enjoy our conversation with Kirk Perry. Kirk Perry, we're so excited to have you. I've done a number of these. We've asked only a handful of alumni back, people that we felt have more wisdom to give. We want to deep dive on a certain topic. I sat down with Jim Lafferty. I'm sure you've crossed paths with him. I know Jim well. And I was stunned in a pleasant way at how open he was when it was one of these things where I just went, wow, that it didn't feel like a business podcast. And it did in the sense that there was still a lot of learning, but it felt very personal. And, and I really loved that. So, you know, some of us were talking about how great it would be to have Kirk Perry back to talk about his faith. And, you know, faith is something that isn't discussed a lot, certainly at work, but even in broader society. And I was really excited to jump in with you because they always say, no politics, no sex, no religion. Those are the three things at the Thanksgiving table, at work, wherever else. Leave those things alone. And even if, let's assume that last one is not even in the realm of possibility. So, well, I, I do have a number of questions, but I want to just leave it fairly open-ended to begin with, which is just to start by, why did you agree to come back and discuss this particular topic of faith? And what does faith mean to you? For me, faith is such a core part of who I am. I enjoy talking about it because To your point, it is one of those things that conventional wisdom or society say, don't talk about. In fact, if you're listening, less less overway, when I joined the company in 1990, was a marketing director for healthcare. And we had launched my first two weeks on the job and talking about various things, how to get off to a fast start. I'm an undergrad, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, like how do I navigate this corporate world? And I didn't know much about anything. And he said, hey, Kirk, One bit of advice I'd give you, three pieces to it. But the first is don't date anyone you work with. And I'm like, well, I'm married. So if I do, then I've got bigger issues than than that. The second one was don't talk politics. Uh And the third one was if you're religious, keep it to yourself. Wow. If if I could just give a little bit of context on my, my faith in general at that point in my life, I was a priester which means I went to Christmas and Easter services. In our house growing up, we were CEOs, Christmas and Easter only. And faith in our house was very much crisis driven. Mm. So my family was very blue collar. You know, we spent a year on welfare growing up or we ran out of money before we ran out of month. And so we'd go to church when like there was crisis going on in the house. And that kind of was ingrained in me. The other one was, about faith is it was very personal. You didn't share it because my dad would 
kind of jokingly, but not really would say someone who talked openly about their faith was a Bible beater or a Bible thumper or a Jesus freak. So you hear those things as a kid and you think, okay, got to keep it kind of covered up. You can't share it openly because it's a personal thing or people will scorn you for it. And that's how I thought about it. And at that point in my life, faith was very theoretical, academic. I would probably argue I was agnostic. I I believed theoretically in God, but I wasn't really sure because I had grown up very hard scrabble and like, where was God in my life? At various points, I could go into a bunch of stories, but I wouldn't say I had a strong faith at all. And so Les's words to me were like, okay, yeah, it's not a problem on any of those fronts. And to add a little bit to that story, maybe a month later, someone named Jim Bechtold Yep. Jim is to this day an incredibly close friend of mine. Started planting those seeds of faith in corporate America. I remember when he came and introduced himself, and uh, Jim was probably three years senior to me in the company and said, Hey, we do a 6 a.m. Bible study like Thursday mornings every other week. First of all, 6 a.m. Bible studies did not appeal that much to me because we were just talking about at the time how we were living in Fairfield. So that was. You know, I would have to leave the house at 5.15 to get to the GO by 6 a.m. And I'm like, yeah, well, right. the time wasn't great. But the other one was... Your faith there was more like, is 75 South going to be open? That's that, that's the faith you had. <laughs> pretty much, exactly. And so I said, well, Jim, you know, I mean, I've got... you know, this, I, I basically lied so I could get out of this. And Jim kept persisting. He kept inviting me and inviting me. And he never quit inviting me. But I always came up with excuses and never came. But to his credit, Jim would take me to lunch. We'd go to breakfast occasionally, and he would plant these seeds. And another guy named Greg Diener, who used to work for the company as well, and another good friend of mine to this day, Greg also was very overtly faithful. And you know, he would ask me questions about my faith, and I was very academic and very closed off. And so anyway, all that to say, when Les had that conversation with me that day, it kind of cemented maybe what I had already thought I would do. And if someone would have said to me 33 years later that you have become an open advocate sharing your faith in a very respectful way, I would have laughed at them if someone would have told me that 33 years ago. Okay. That's that's really great context to have because I think, you know, being in the minority, being a Hindu and, and seeing Christianity to us, I assume you're Christian. Yes, Okay. So at this point, we we have this sort of outside in of, oh, the whole country is Christian and we're off to the side and we've got this little kind of weird forearm God kind of thing going on, right? Yeah. And that's not accurate. I mean, I, I remember having a conversation with a couple of friends out here and they're both from Tennessee, they're Protestants. And, you know, we were having a conversation about the schism in Hinduism over some particular thing. And they said, we go through it too. And I go, oh, tell me more. Like I know Martin Luther and, and, and Catholicism and Eastern Orthodox. I know all that. They go, no, no, no. Like we had a falling out with another church because we wanted to play music like on an electric guitar. And they didn't. They were like, no, there's no guitar in church. And there was a schism and one church went one way and one went another. And to us, it's very monolithic. But I think when you're in it, it's not like that at all. Yeah, and, it, and what's fascinating is you point out something very incredibly true about the Christian faith. It is as splintered as and different as, you know, my wife grew up Southern Baptist. And the first time mm-hmm. I went to church with her, 
I, I wanted to like fall back in my chair. You know, it was like hellfire brimstone. The pastor's wiping the corner of his mouth and his face is red. I'm like, oh my God, for a guy that goes twice a year, this is scary. You know, and then we go to a place in town now called Crossroads and mm-hmm. Crossroads is open to anyone because, you know, it's a place that focuses on people who've given up on church, but not on God. And so mm-hmm. I, I think even in my PNG journey, back to your point, like you're Hindu, I had had the richest faith-based conversations because I'm open about my faith with people of the Hindu faith, the Muslim mm-hmm. faith, even atheists having conversations about why I believe what I believe. And I, you know, spent almost eight years at Google, very similar there in the Bay area where, you know, where half the people that live in San Francisco Bay area are not born in the United States. Yeah. And so having yeah. conversations from people from around the world about faith and their differences. I mean, my belief is we all share the same creator. Mm-hmm. And so how someone interprets that is for us to learn and to respect. Because that ultimately, to me, is, is the way to respectfully share your faith is my job is not to convert people to my faith. That's God's job. My job is to share what I believe and why I believe it in a way that doesn't alienate, offend. You know, I, mm. I, I think sometimes people are so zealous in every faith, of mm-hmm. zealous in convincing each other that we're the only one, that we stop looking at what's common. You know, Deb Henretta boss of mine at PNG used to say as common as possible is different as necessary. And I think when you look at commonalities of faith, there are very core constructs across each of the faith disciplines in the world. And people tend to focus on the differences, not on what's similar. And a woman named Kate Shapira Latz, Kate used to work for me at PNG. She now, she and her husband, Alan run Heaven Hill Distillery in Bartstown, Kentucky. It's a family business, but Kate, when she left PNG, gave me a book called The Jewish Book of Why. It was a really intriguing book that I read from cover to cover about Jewish faith, customs, mm-hmm. symbolism, but it gave me such a much deeper insight into her faith than I had ever had. And then sure. when I moved to California, I had a taxi driver. His name was Muhammad mm-hmm. from Pakistan. He was Muslim. Mm-hmm. And I had the richest faith-based conversations with that guy. When I got sick, I had stage four cancer in 2015. Oh, wow. And Mohammed and I were close enough at that point after a couple of years of him taking me back and forth to the airport. He came over to my house and he would pray outside on his prayer rug yeah. as part of his, his prayers during the day. And so I think faith should bring us together and not drive us apart. And we will all have differences in what we believe, but it should never be the thing in the workplace that drives us apart. I mean, we're, I'm in Cincinnati and you're in LA, but you know, Cincinnati right now has got Bengals fever. Oh, I know. I know. And it's all over the news and people are wearing their shirts and they talk about it. And I'm sure at the water coolers and offices in Cincinnati, it's the talk of the town, but how many people like, and it's important, but it's sports, you know, it's Mm -hmm. big men playing a little kid's game and yeah, it's amazing. But at the end of the day, you don't play, you're just a fan, but faith for people that believe it is a core part of who they are. And I always struggle when people don't believe they can share who they are. Like, in the workplace, when you walk through that door, it should be created to allow you to bring the best version of yourself in the door every day. And if your Hindu faith is core to who you are, you should be able to talk about that. You should be able to express your beliefs in a way, again, that respect those around you, but that are clearly sharing who you are. And so, you know, that's kind of how I think about faith and work and being able to share in a way, like I said, is not proselytizing. It's sharing why I am the way I am and what I believe and why I believe it. 
long-winded answer, but that's that's kind of how I think about you know being different, but being able to share it in a way that's respectful. Oh no, I, not long-winded at all. I, I was fascinated from the start to the finish. I always think of it at work: how thick is that mask you have to wear? Mm-hmm. And the thinner the mask that you put on when you open the door and walk into the GO, the thinner that is, the more you are yourself. But other people walk in, they feel like that mask is a mile thick. They can't be themselves at all. Yeah, and they're just not vibrating at the natural frequency of the building or the people or the culture. And I recently heard you probably heard this many times, but some agency had come up with. A corporate culture is, quote unquote, the way we do things around here. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's a good way of describing corporate culture. And let's start more in the in the business side of it, because I definitely have faith questions for sure. And sure. I'm sure we'll get into this. But do you have do's and don'ts, best practices, sort of rules of engagement with faith? Is there Do you have a one pager on it? Or mm-hmm. how do you sort of integrate that into the workplace as a leader? Yeah, so it's a great question. No, I don't have a white paper. I don't have a playbook. I believe that leadership is really simple. And I think that people see through platitudes, they see through phoniness, they see through playbooks. And so I always try to strive for being humble, authentic, and vulnerable in leadership situations or in leadership postures. What I mean by that is, you know, being who I am all the time, the incongruity sometimes that I used to live with, you know, I would be one way at work. In another way outside of work. Yeah. Right. You know, I, I describe it as, you know, when I, when I think about, I'll be personal and share something I'm not terribly proud of, but it's true. So when I was younger, I would go to, to like strip clubs. Okay. And I, and I thought about, like, I remember as I had kids, I'm like, is that, that, that woman is someone's daughter. Sure. But as I really found my faith and who I was, I'm like, is that authenticity to be, saying that I believe something, but then do that. Like, is that really who I want to be? And so I think your faith gives you a grounding. And I, and I think for me in the business world, my faith, if I live it out the way I should and follow what God wants me to be and do, then my faith should be permeating everything I do. So it should be a humble, authentic, and vulnerable extension of who I am. And I'll give you a couple of thoughts on that. One is like in the Bible, the word work or toil is mentioned 480 times. Wow. 480 times. So it's pretty important to God that work is something that we do. You know, a lot of times we're like, oh man, let's just get through this world and go to heaven. Well, God put us here for a reason, right? It wasn't to be comfortable. It was to build our character Mm. and help us to be an impact on this world that he created. I think through work, right? So there's a scripture in the Christian New Testament, and it's Ephesians 6, 6, and it says, work hard, but not just to please your masters when they are watching. The slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as you are working for the Lord rather than for people. And I I think about that a lot as I have got my faith. It's like, no, I'm, I'm working for God. Like Now, before we go like, oh, wow, do you walk around with an I love Jesus you know, flashing neon light on your forehead. No. And to your question, I talk about it in ways that would be natural conversations. I use words when I speak like blessed and grateful. Mm-hmm. You know, if someone says, Hey, what'd you do this weekend? And if I happen to do something faith-based, I'll share it. You know, some people say, Hey, I went to the Bengals game or went to the Reds game or we went hiking, but I heard a great message at church yesterday that really impacted me. And mm-hmm. so I, I try to make it in the, and then what happens 
is for people that aren't interested, I'm not offending them and I'm not doing mm-hmm. anything that would cause them to be like, oh my gosh, he's trying to shove his Christian faith down my throat. For those who are interested, they'll ask me about it and say, hey, you mentioned something the other day. Like I had somebody at PNG many, many years ago when I was on stage, I, I said something about, I feel really blessed to have this job or whatever was going on. And I used to do office hours once a month for anybody that wanted to come in. And where he came in and sat down, he said, hey, I just want to ask you a question. Or use the word blessed. I, I'm guessing from maybe how you carry yourself that you're, you're a believer. This well, it depends on what, what you're asking, what I believe in. But, you know, he explained sort of how we thought I believed. And I said, well, that's kind of true. You know, I'm early walk Christian, but yes, this, mm-hmm. this is why, you know, this is what I believe. And we had this great conversation that then became a regular ongoing back and forth, him asking me questions, me sharing, but again, never with the intent of cramming something into somebody, but rather letting them ask me why, again, back to the extension of who you really are and being congruent. I try never to cuss during meetings. I'm not perfect at it, but I've always believed he's not professional to begin with. And, and that was one of the things PNG taught me, but also it just, not who I want to be. And again, mm-hmm. I, I'm being faithful does not mean being perfect. Being faithful means to me, you're running towards something instead of away from something, hmm. you know? And so I want to try to be the best version of what God made me to be. And so I try not to do things that would cause people to go, oh, he says one thing, does another. And so when I was at Google for about a year, someone, we were in a meeting and someone dropped the F-bomb and others were talking to the meeting and I didn't say anything. And so after the meeting, one of the women that I'd been working with over the last year, she pulled me aside and said, no, I just, just want to ask you, like I watch people in meetings and observer of people and people were dropping words in the meeting today that made me squirm a little bit. And I did too. You know, I said something, but you didn't even blink or yeah. respond in that way. Like, why are you that way? Yeah. It just opened up a discussion about why I told her almost exactly what I just told you. I said, well, you know, my faith is important to me and I don't think God designed me to be that way, but you know, sometimes I slip up, but I try not to. And it's just what I believe. And I, you can say whatever you want. You're an adult. And if that, if that's what you want to do, or that's totally up to you, I'm not judging. I'm just saying that's how I want to be. And so mm-hmm. it's created a, a natural conversation for me. The other way I share it, if I can tell you a story, weave a story, if we, if you let me do that about yeah. how I came to my faith it ultimately, and then how that played out and how I shared it. So I had four, I have four kids. My oldest turns 30 next month, which is weird to say out loud. We were having this conversation earlier. She turns 30 next month. And when she was six years old, we found out she had kidney cancer. It's one of those things that makes you question everything in life. And it turned my world upside down. I mean, we were living in Korea at the time and we had to come back to the U.S. to have her treated at Children's Hospital here in Cincinnati. And Again, talk about what a gift that place is to the city and to the region. I mean, it's just the world. People come from all over the world, and particularly oncology, to be treated there. And she had kidney cancer and had her kidney removed. There's a whole, whole, whole long story to this. But ultimately, you know, P&G was amazing and like said, hey, Kurt, do what you have to do if you have to move back to the U.S. We were planning on moving to Japan that fall anyway. They said, hey, we'll put your stuff in storage. We'll assume you're moving over there, but take back to the U.S. whatever you need. We'll rent you an apartment. I mean, the company could not have been better to us. Hmm. But fast forward, we're back six weeks. She just started her chemo and came home from work one day. And I was working this weird shift because I kept my job in Northeast Asia. So I worked the night shift. So literally, I would wow. start at night and I would work all night and I'd sleep a little bit in the morning. And then I'd go into the offices in Cincinnati because I was doing a project for Global Baby Care, which became Baby Stage of Development at that time. So it was a and we had a kid with cancer. 
So I came up from work and uh, I'll never forget it. Carly, who was then six, literally she was eating dinner. We were having spaghetti. Vividly remember it. She falls to the ground, writhing in pain for like 10 seconds. Picks herself back up, sits down, takes another bite of spaghetti. My wife and I, Jackie, are looking at each other like, what in the world just happened? And then five minutes later, drops to the ground, does it again. And so, you know, 15 minutes of this five-minute pattern, it was almost like she was in labor pain. So yeah. colon oncologist, he's like, man, I think it sounds like something from the surgery because when she, they take her kidney out, they cut her side to side and they open her up to the kidney out. Like, sounds like something from the surgery. And we got rushed her down to children's and put a tube down her nose. And surgeons think it's the chemo. The, the oncologists think it's the surgery. They brought a gastroenterologist. And this goes on for a week. Finally, on Saturday, I, I pulled the docs together. I'm like, hey, we've been here five days. We don't know what's going on. She's got a tube down her throat. She can't keep ice chips down. She's pumping a morphine drip every 10 minutes. Like, we got to figure this out. And I, in my mind, by the way, was like, there is no God. There's no way. Right. There is a God who loves the world that is letting my six-year-old daughter suffer. So I was kind of moving into agnostic to atheist. And I remember they had to rush her down to get an MRI. It was a big to do, but they, we come up, we're in our room, we're like running down the hall. And uh, the doctors come in and work behind the screen and they open it up and say, hey, can we see you in the hall? Which is never a good thing. And took us in the hall and they said, hey, good news is we think we figured out what's wrong. However, it's not going to be a pleasant fix. And they told us that they thought but they knew she had a surgical adhesion mm. from her kidney being removed, which blocked her colon. And when you have a peristaltic wave that gets blocked, it causes that severe pain. That's where that five-minute rhythm came from. Gee, and they said, we're going to have to go in and we're going to have to clip part of her colon out and resect it where the adhesion is. But we think her colon is perforated, which means that she's had her, her stool in her system for the last week. And we think that Mm. We're going to have to leave her open. So leave my six-year-old daughter open after her surgery with antibiotics so she heals and put a colostomy bag on her for six months. Mm. So we go down, they rush her down, and our doctor comes out. It's supposed to be a five-and-a-half-hour surgery in an hour, and we're the only ones in the waiting room. Kicks the door open, comes out. He's got his gloves on, mask on, blood everywhere. You know, our hearts sink. And he said, hey, great news. We opened her up, no perforation just a blockage. So we snipped a foot of her colon. We resected her. We sewed her up. She, no colostomy bag. She'll be in recovery in like an hour. So we're like, I mean, I, my head was spinning. And after he leaves, there's a several points in the Bible where they say like Jesus wept or someone wept. Mm. And I'm not an emotional person, but the first time in my life, I wept. Mm. I like dropped to my knees. My wife and I were hugging just I remember sobbing, like the point where my chest was like heaving. And I remember she pulled away from me. And my wife, who had a very difficult childhood, her dad was killed by a drunk driver when she was three years old. Her mom was married multiple times. She had a really rough childhood, but she always had a strong faith. And always, she was the faith rock in our marriage and the early part of our marriage anyway. And she pulled away from me and she grabbed me by the cheeks and said, do you realize how God must have felt when his son was hanging on the cross, screaming out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He could have stopped it, but he didn't. He loved us that much. We would have given our lives to stop Carly's pain, and we couldn't. That is how much God loves us. And it was the most, you hear about these like miraculous conversions. That was one for me. Mm. It just, it so struck me to my core because I was living like up close 
You know, I, for the first time, I was one of these people that thought I can fix anything. I can plow through anything, pull myself up on my bootstraps. I couldn't with this. I could not prevent her from being sick, getting better. I couldn't help her get better. I had no power, no control. It was the first time in my life I, I realized that even the challenges I had growing up, like God was always there with me. And it was this powerful, and I mentioned it earlier, it was a powerful transformation, not a perfection. Like I am probably so far away from the man God built me to be, but I strive to be better. And so the reason I'm sharing that story is when I got promoted to be a general manager, I was in Japan. I was in Northeast Asia living in, it was about 18 months after this. I was getting promoted and I'd just been through this, I forget what the training session at PNG was. Basically, part of it was mm. we were doing these life maps and people were putting on these sort of peaks and valleys in their life. You know, they, they said keep three to four. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to be introducing myself. I'm, I'm young for a gentleman. I was in my early 30s. Wow. You know, I was in a foreign country with 90% of my organization being non-Western. So I'm like, I have to tell them who I really am. And so I, thought, I laid awake that night. I'm like, all right, I'm going to share with them these four things about me, super personal things. And I finished up with a very brief version of the story of Carly. And each of the personal stories were about things that then translated to how I think about the business. Like my first one, being a poor kid growing up when my parents got laid off. And I'm like, hey, as a general manager, I will think about every decision I make, not from the lens of NPVs, from the lens of people impacted if I'm wrong. Mm. We, can, we can move headquarter people around if we're short on our budget for the year. But man, those line workers in Cape Girardeau or Green Bay or Mahoopany, like we're the only game in town. Like we better be right, more right than we're wrong because we're impacting people's lives. And so that was one. But when I got to the Carly story, Mm. I talked about it in the context of, I didn't say like, oh, this is my faith conversion. But I shared it in the context of how it shook me to my core as a dad because I, and again, I was very honest and said, I was not a very good husband or dad for the first six years of her life and then her sister who was three years younger because I never wanted them to be on welfare like I was. And so I justified my six days a week, 12 hours a day by I don't want my kids to ever be in the same situation I am. And I'm like, that's wrong. Like, I don't want that to be the case because today's called the present because it's a gift. Hmm. And you never get it back. Tomorrow's a dream. You, you know, yesterday is the past. But I, I said, I'm going to live my life different. I'm going to ba- I'm going to be way more balanced. I'm going to be home for dinner. I'm going to coach my kids' sports. I'm going to tell people who I really am. And so I used my storytelling and how I changed to share who I am. And part of that is my faith journey, and that's that's how I bring it up. And I think. And I, and I think about God's calling on me that, you know, work's important. It's a big part of the Bible. How, you know, work is if you're working for God, not for, for him. So when I'm at work, I want to be fully present, fully who I am. And back to your point about the mask, it's a beautiful metaphor. Because I found I am at my very best when I can be very authentically who I am. When I have to pretend to be something I'm not, then I am shit, excuse my French, I am, (laughs) I'm not good. Like, and I just, I so feel and empathize with people who are like, you know, you know, I had this guy, I'm naturally an extrovert, but you know, PNG grooms, general managers, it's a very extroverted job. Mm -hmm. And so like very close friends of mine are just born and bred introverts and to be extroverted all day, they go home and collapse Mm -hmm. and they talk about the mat, not in the same way you do, which I, I'm going to start borrowing that from you and giving you full credit. But it's that whole idea that if you can't bring who you really are and have open discussions, 
And it doesn't mean people are going to agree with everything you think or everything you do, but it just means you're authentically who you are. So that's a very long answer to a great question. Hey, you know, comedians, I'm a comedian and, and we're supposed to be really cynical and really pessimistic. And <laughs> I've learned to become that. We can bookmark that. But I say this to people out here all the time. And I, I preface it by saying that, that I know I shouldn't say this as a comedian, but but I live in awe of the human spirit. Mm. I do. I live in awe of the human spirit. And to hear a story of what you went through, and I have friends who have gone through things. I've gone through some stuff, but I've seen people and heard people who have really gone to hell and back. And in your case, it's faith. I don't know. I mean, I guess there was a song by, by the Mighty Mighty Boston's called The Impression That I Get. I don't know if you remember the song from the 90s, but it was like, never had to knock on wood. I know someone who has, and I'm sure it isn't good. And it was this whole like speculation, like if he went through something really difficult, could he do it? Would he even want to do it? And it, it was kind of a deep song for a ska band uh, jam from, from the late 90s. But to me, it's like, that seems like that was your your inflection point mm -hmm. where it kind of came together for you. When did Crossroads start? Is this the beginning of that? I remember you're being involved, Jim Bechtold's being involved. I, I don't think I ever went, but I'm good friends with a number of people who do go to Crossroads. Can you talk a little bit about Crossroads? Yeah, so it started actually well before I started going there. It started in 1997. And like I mentioned, it was a place where people had given up on church, but not on God. Mm -hmm. And so there were four P&G couples that actually came together to take out home ec equity loans on their homes and, and put this thing together. And they, wow. they were at the Hyde Park Methodist Church, or I'm sorry, the Hyde Park Middle School, I think is where they were. They didn't know how many people would show up. They hired a pastor, who's still there today, Wow, who was young at the time. And they said, we're going to see how this experiment goes. They put wires on people's cars and word of mouth. And Brian Tome is a senior pastor said, I, you know, I turn around and I had no idea what to expect. It was full. It was like 250 people the first Sunday. And then, you know, in any given weekend now, face-to-face -face or online, they reach 50,000 people. And Whoa. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. And for a few years in the late, like 2017, 18, 19 window, they were the fastest growing large church in the United States. So it's a pretty remarkable story when you think about you know, a place like Cincinnati where people say, oh, it's the Bible Belt. And of course, people believe in God there and, you know, they go to church. But to have a church with drew people in that way is pretty doggone remarkable. And so it was interesting how I got connected there because I was Jim Bechtold, actually talking about how God works and has a great sense of humor. Jim replaced me in Northeast Asia. So hmm. Jim took my job in Japan when I came back to the U.S. And he said, hey, there's the guy who's the, the pastor at Crossroads Church, you guys would absolutely hit it off. You'd be best buddies. I moved back in 2003 and Jim took my job then. He said, you should meet up with Brian. And so I reached out to Brian and he's like, oh, I don't you know, I don't meet on Friday. It's my day off, which I understand. And I'm like, I travel all the time. So we never met. Jim moved back in 2006, put a small group together. And then Brian and I hit it off and we became fast friends. I'm like, I want to go to the church this guy leads and see what it's like. And what drew me to it was... The fact that it brings people in, like I said earlier, who've given up on the church or people who don't know anything about it. And it's all about how do we serve others so they see the true light of Christ, the true light of God. And, you know, a lot of times I believe that at least the Christian faith has become intertwined with political parties mm -hmm. and, and, you know, certain things that they're against. And I believe that 
the God of my Bible is for things, not always against things. I mean, yes, God, there are certain things that like he advises us not to do. That's why there's the Ten Commandments, tells us not to do. But God also talks very clearly, like in the New Testament of the Bible, he talks about the fact that what are the greatest commandments? The Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. And he's like, hey, the two greatest commandments are simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, might, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the greatest commandments. Not go give this amount to your church or not go be against abortion or not go be against, like, no. It's like, love your neighbor, and love God. Pretty daggone simple. We forget that. Mm-hmm. And that's where a lot of the divisiveness comes in and it's not necessary. It's not what he intended. And so I think about that in the context of why has the church become so separated? And when you think about the great things that the Christian church has started, like public schooling, hospitals, you know, and during the plagues in Rome in the early days of the church, the reason the church spread so quickly when you study the history of it is, I mean, during the plagues in early Rome, it wasn't the Roman government took care of people that were dying from it. It was people of the church. Like that's, that's how the faith took off. We're like, hey, who are these people that are sacrificing their life to help others? Like that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So anyway, all that to say, like Crossroads tries to bring that. And what was interesting is, is back oh, 2010, earlier than that, 2009, I think, Brian asked me, he's like, hey, would you give a message about how you build people or, or how, you, how you live out your faith or things like that at work? Because that is the first time I've ever honestly stood on a stage and talked about like, here's my, how I integrate my faith. I'm like, mm-hmm. are you going to fire me? Am I going to you know, piss the people off in my organization who aren't believers? Am I going to like, all these things went through my head. But I'm like, you know what? Back to the authenticity part. If they fire me, because I am who I am, that means it's not the place I want to be. Sure. Right? And so Crossroads is just a unique place in that it, it reaches people who normally aren't reached in the church. A lot of times there's an impression, I thought this way, I mentioned to you, I was a priester. I didn't feel worthy to be in church. I felt like I had to be better. And I sure. think, you know, if you read the Christian Bible, one of the things that's very clear is that God meets you where you are. Like show up. You don't have to fix yourself. My favorite Christian books is written by a guy named Philip Yancey. And it's What's So Amazing About Grace is the name of the book. And in it, the very first story in the book, when you open up the first page, is a woman who was arrested because she prostituted out her two-year-old child. Hmm. She was arrested and this Christian faith-based counselor was meeting with her and he recommended, he's like, hey, have you ever thought about going to church? Because you feel awful about yourself. You feel like you don't belong. She's like, church, that's the last place I'd want to be. They would judge me more than I'm already judging myself or something like that. The reason that that struck a chord with me is the church should be the most welcoming place. You don't have to be right. cleansed and excellent to go there. Come as you are, and that's where God meets you. And that's what I love about Crossroads. But I think that that's the power of like a truly open place is where people don't feel like they have to be perfect or polished or wear the right clothes or say. And I remember one of my favorite stories about one of the first times I went in. There was a couple on stage. And Brian started off by saying, hey, this was 2006. I don't want anybody talking about this outside. We're not going to put this online. Hmm. It was this couple who talked about this marital infidelity, both of them going through drugs and doing all stuff. And I was like, they're talking about this at church? People talk about this at church? Like real freaking issues that they're dealing with? Them? Yeah. But anyway, that, that's why I'm so compelled by that place because it just, it meets people where they are, which I think is so important in a world that's broken and 
people want something and we try to fill our holes in our souls with things and activities that aren't fulfilling. And I think it's people of any faith or no faith. We live in a consumeristic society where we try to get our needs met through things, not through like deep relations and belief in something bigger than who we are. So, but anyway, that's why our church is so important to me. Catherine and Casey Basil. Catherine and I worked together at P&G for a few years, and they're still two very dear friends of mine. And we talk probably every day, at least on text or something like that. And she always comes in with these great arguments because Casey and I will talk about politics and economics, and she just wants to have fun and talk about more fun stuff. But she'll come in with a point that just, you know, neither one of us saw. And she's done this a couple of times, very importantly for me, that shaped my belief system. I said, you know, look, Hinduism is, you know, 5,000 years old and we kind of had all of this stuff figured out. And then we have these Johnny-come-latelys who come along and they have, you know, yeah. what have you guys really brought to the table? What, what, what have Christians really done? You know, and I'm, I'm kind of saying it in the same tone, right? Dude, it's, I'm not fire and brimstone. I'm just kind of like pulling her leg, but I really want to know. I'm like, well, what did you add? What did you add to the mix that, that we hadn't already figured out? And she said, I will answer that question. She goes, I know you're, you're saying that half in jest, but her answer to that was was grace. And I thought that was really, really insightful. And that really has stayed with me because my grandfather made it all the way to 98. He was not really a, an official priest, but he was a wise man in his village in India, northern India. And a Christian man had studied with him and was with him and reading and all these things. And, you know, he said, I'd like to convert. I'd like to become a Hindu. And my grandfather, this is decades ago, said to him, he said, what are you? You know, you're Christian, right? And he said, yeah. And he goes, well, tell me everything you know about your religion. And the man knew very little. Mm. And my grandfather's words to him were, go off and learn about your own religion first. Mm. And if after all of that, you still want to convert, I'm happy to talk to you about that. But I think you need to learn where you are first before you make this leap. And I thought that was, that mm. was really wise. Mm. Wow. Your grandfather was a wise man. And I think what your friend mentioned as well, that you look at all the faiths of the world and, and you look at the differentiation, like I said earlier, there's way more commonality mm -hmm. than differences. And so when you look at the differences, other faiths are what you do gets you to heaven, like your work. Right. 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 But in, in, in the Christian faith, it's grace of God that gets you to heaven. Mm -hmm. Nothing you do. And in that book I mentioned earlier, there's a line he has in the back. And I think about this every day of my life. Nothing you do can make God love you more and nothing you do can make God love you less. And, and grace is by definition an undeserved gift. And I think about it as a parent. You know, I have four kids and man, there are days I don't like them very much, <laughs> but I always love them. And right. there is, I would give my life for them no matter what, like without even thinking. Mm -hmm. That's what God did for me. He came to this earth to figure out like why we were so wacky and to sacrifice his son for us. And, you know, are there a lot of confusing things about it? Most definitely. But I, I just know, I know to the core of my being that he is real and, you know, that not only because, and I'm a very fact-based analytical guy, mm -hmm. I used to have the book, the best agnostic arguments ever against like how in the world could there be a God, but like the historicity, like the facts, there's a guy named Lee Strobel who wrote a book called The Case for Christ. And Lee was an atheistic legal writer for the Chicago Tribune hmm. and wrote this incredible, his wife had a conversion to Christianity. And he's like, what in the world? She's like whacked out of her mind. Like what in the heck is going on? 
And he said, she was so different. He's like, okay, there's something to, like, I need to investigate this as I would a story. Sure. So he proceeded to do this investigated journalism that ended with him becoming a follower of Christ and writing this book called the case for Christ. And it was, I share like people who are kind of saying, Hey, what are books that you would recommend somebody who's really trying to find out who they are, what they believe and what's so amazing about grace, which talks about, and it says in that book, the only difference between the Christian faith and other faiths really is grace. Mm. And then the case for Christ, because it is a, for people who are more analytical in the New Testament, the Bible, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse one, it's, it says, faith is being sure of what you hope for, but certain of what you cannot see. And I used to have that on my license plate in California, which created very interesting conversations for me. But I think about that, like there's only so much that our analytics can get us to. True. There always is a leap, right? There's a leap to what you believe and why you believe it. Sure. And it's never a knock against anyone else. It's like, okay, there's a schism between what is known and what is unknown. And it's like, to me, God bridges that divide for me. He's reaching from my known to my unknown side, and I trust that. So, One of my best friends, Azar Usman, as the name would betray, is Muslim, and he knows the Quran and all of that. And we've had these very interesting discussions to your point. And another Muslim friend of mine, Abu Bakr, says, you know, you can't be a prophet in your own land. And it's so true, right? You're just not even respected at home. You can tell your family the same stuff, but then you know, someone else will say it to your wife. Just go, oh, yeah, that's a good point. Like, I've been telling you that the whole time. You can't be a prophet in your own land. You have to travel. You have to go out and, and preach elsewhere. And Uzzer, he came over a few weeks ago and Sometimes it's just so infuriating to talk to him because I'm like, well, how do you know? And how do you know Islam is right? And, you know, in your head and all this. He goes, well, let's start upstream. You know, what does it mean to know something? Like, we're going to start this far upstream, like the epistemology. He goes, no, but what does it mean to know something? Like, is it in your head? Is it in your gut, your heart, your spirit, your soul? Like, he goes, maybe I don't know it here, but I know it here. I know it in my gut. I know it in my soul. And my best friend actually is, is a wasp. He's a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant from Cincinnati. We've known each other since fifth grade. He's up in Seattle. And I go to him for advice all the time. You know, I, I had a, a falling out with someone very close to me. And, you know, he lives. What would Jesus do? I said, what should I do? You know, what could I do? And I've noticed that if you say what you could do to people, it's very opening. Because when I say, you know what you should do, it's judgment. But when I say, you know what you could do, it's possibilities. And people open up like, oh, mm -hmm. well, what could I do? Love that. So he said Jesus would continually prostrate himself. You just keep coming and you keep showing grace and you keep showing love. And even though you're being wronged, and you're being wronged, I'm listening to your stories, you are being wronged in this. That's not relevant. He's like, what's relevant is how do you want to be? And that's why in arguments, if I'm sorry, I'll say I'm sorry. There are people who are like, well, I'll say sorry if you say you're sorry. Well, that's garbage then. Like, no, but are you sorry? Then say you're sorry. And I don't want to behave that way. To your point about, you know, swearing or cursing or whatever. It's like, that's why I work clean as a comedian. I, yeah, I tell dirty jokes off stage and I, I laugh and, and, and I'll drop an F-bomb at a party. But on stage, it's like, I don't know these people. I don't know all 300 of them. I don't know all 3,000 of them, whatever it is. I'm going to be that loose with in conversation. I mean, it, when I meet someone for the first time, we have neighbors, and I said this to my wife. I go, you notice they never swear? She goes, oh, yeah. I go, yeah. I, so I don't swear around them now. Not that I 
really, I don't swear a lot anyway, but I go, I'm going to be careful. Mm. But it's funny how that leads you to, are they religious? And you're like, maybe, maybe they are, maybe they're not. But again, getting back to the idea of like these conversations I've had with Uzzer about Islam and with John about Christianity, they've always led me back to, to your point. I had read something that was, and you've hit on this a little bit critical already, which is we bond according to our similarities and we grow according to our differences. Yep, that's exactly right. Well said. And I, I come back to that. And, and John Langdon has been a great guide for that. I don't think any of Christ's teachings are in conflict with Hinduism. I can't think of anything where I've read, and I've read Mere Christianity. I've read a few of the books of the Bible and certainly gone to Bible study. We Every Christmas, we would go to church with this family that we knew. And I've never heard anything in the faith where I was like, no, that's wrong, or that just doesn't compute. Yeah. And and it's interesting. I I love what you're sharing about your friend. I mean, I think the cool thing about Jesus is he was equally truth and grace. Hmm. So yes, Jesus prostrates himself and forgives, but he also turned the tables of the money changers at the temple. He also called the Pharisees snakes. Same time, go and sin no more. Like he was filled with grace. And so, and I think about that from a work construct I tend to be, my orientation is truth, black and white. My wife, she's all grace. So together, we're a combustible mixture of truth and grace. But if we take the pieces of the truth and the grace and bring them together, that's what I think the Christ was on earth, was this unique, weird mix of truth and grace. Because I think we're oriented toward one or the other, right? Mm -hmm. I want black and white, or I live in shades of gray, and I give people the benefit of the doubt. Like, that's how that works. And so it works sometimes when I'm tough, like I'm firm, but I'm clear. And I've been in business 33 years. I've let go of a lot of people, but I've done it in, I hope, in a compassionate and kind and careful way. So I spoke truth, mm-hmm. but I also gave grace. And that's, I think for me, kind of living out your faith at work, to your point, like your Hindu faith and your principles, being true to those and who you are, allows you to do what you do better, I think. Because no faith, like, yeah, you have the fringes of every faith. Like there are totally, there are wackadoodle Christians. There are wackadoodle Muslims. There are wackadoodle, I'm sure of it. Like in every, sure. every, every, every group of people has wackadoodles, but it doesn't mean the whole faith believes that. And I think, mm-hmm. like, sorry, you, you have the ability to be who you are and be the best version of yourself because if it's really who you are and you're acting on that, the faiths at their core are good. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they're all about like, how do we transcend this broken human state and be bigger and better and have a higher order of purpose? And so we kind of boil it down to that. And I think the people I meet who are the most broken, who have addictions, I have unfortunately two siblings who were severe alcoholics who've since pulled mm-hmm. out of it, but they have unresolved issues that are only solvable through grace. And like you fill those holes with things mm-hmm. that are not healthy most of the time. Hate, alcohol, drugs, people who aren't your spouse, like get on the list, like all the things you could, you know, you're chasing the Joneses. So you, know, you have a hole you got to fill because you want something mm-hmm. and you cheat your company or you, you know, you get on the list, right? That's because we're chasing something and usually it's some sort of redemption. And the only place you get that is God. It isn't through anything human. It isn't through anything you know, I was I was watching Josh Allen, who's the quarterback of the Buffalo Bills, talk last week at the press conference after the game they beat the New England Patriots, and mm-hmm. he got choked up because he said, "Man, when we when when that when that Buffalo Bill ran the opening kickoff battle 
personality, right? Josh Allen got choked up. He's like, guys, yeah. this is this is supernatural. Like, you can't make this up. Like, we haven't run one back this year. In like, like 10 half. years. Like, this is yeah. supernatural. This is God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and he choked up and he was like crying. He's like, I walked around telling guys, God is real. God is real. God is real. And he kept repeating it. Those are just examples of where like people want that. Mm-hmm. People want what Josh Allen had. Like, you want that to be this healthy interaction with challenge and struggle to come out of that with something like that storybook kickoff return. But you know, most of us don't get the storybook kickoff returns, right? We struggle with it. We struggle with what happened to us as a kid. We struggle, you know, my wife is like, I tease her, like, do you wear like a barbed wire bra and leather underwear all the time? Like she is so tough. Yeah. But I think about what happened to her, like how many kids recover from their dad dying when they're three years old, yeah. killed by a drunk driver, their mom being married multiple times, you know, other things happen to her. And I'm like, Man, she has the most unbelievable countenance and faith. I just, I just look at her, and she's always filled the issues with God, because she's never filled them with other things. And that's, that's the differentiator. And I, and I think why people, even in a workplace setting, and I know we're wandering around in the conversation, but in a workplace setting, when people see something different, they're like, "Hey, why is that person different in how they respond to a crisis?" how they behave in meetings, mm-hmm. how they deal with opportunities to cheat, but they don't. You create this opportunity to build into people. And I think back in my career, people I respected the most were the most principled. And I know you were at PNG. A lot of people listening are going to be from PNG. But the company I joined that is still there today is a principle-based company. Like there's things we stand for. And they never waver from those principles. And I think we'd be in a much different place in many ways in our societies around the world. and where institution runs, the way businesses run, you know, how many businesses fail mm-hmm. because someone cheats the company, someone does, you know, make make a terrible decision based on self-worth issues where they're trying to, you know, show like, well, I can do this deal better than you can. And they get up the price and they fall mm-hmm. on their face. It's ego. So Kirk, anything else you want to add to this? I mean, I, I loved every bit of this conversation and I appreciate your vulnerability and your grace and your kindness. And I really appreciate the time to share these things. I don't know if I gave anybody anything interesting or, or important, but lots. You know, I just think being, being true to who you are just opens the aperture on so many other things in your life. And I, I think for me, you know, my transformation gave me the opportunity, I think, to be a better husband, a better dad, a better follower, a better friend a better employee. I think there's so many things that gave me, and I, and, you know, I, I joke with my wife, I, if I wouldn't have married her, I probably would have been divorced by now. And I think, you know, because she kept me on the mm. path toward my ultimate redemption and doesn't, like I said, it doesn't mean that I didn't make mistakes after I found who God was. But I, I just think finding the people that build the community around you in your life. And I love that you talk to your friends every day. Mm-hmm. That's so important to your spouses, your, like the network, the relationships and the network or what I just read a study, I think it posted in the Wall Street Journal. It said, the headline was, and it's true actually, it said, if you want to live longer, have more friends. I, um, I read and, that too. You know, yeah, it was a great article and the data was irrefutable that surround yourself with people who love you and you love and your life's richer and longer and more meaningful. And I think, we're in a very scary place where people are, you know, getting in front of a computer all day and not cultivating those relationships and the pandemic didn't help. But I think we've been drifting toward that with social media for a long time. And I just want to say like value those relationships we've all built in our PNG days. And I still, some of my closest friends in the world are my, 
you know, PG colleagues, the family I grew up with. And no matter where, how long it's been since I've talked to them, it just picked right up where we left off. And it was so meaningful. So I appreciate being able to come back out here again. I've been able to have one of these host Susie Deering, who is the former CMO at Ford and do this. So I'm honored and privileged to be able to do it. I don't know what stuck out to you from this conversation that you just heard, but whatever it is, go take action on it. Maybe you might just let the secret out of the bag at the appropriate time that you're a Christian, if you are, or you're a Muslim, if you are, or you're an agnostic, if you are. You know, whatever whatever your faith or lack thereof is, this shouldn't be something that we hide in shame and just passively keep it to ourselves. Maybe that's it. Maybe you're going to love somebody in a more powerful way because your faith is pushing you to do that. I don't know what it is, but do this. Now, next week, we're going to be back with a new run of interviews. We'll see you then. Can't wait on The Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to bryantome.com. Find my new book, Move, a guide to get up and go forward, as well as articles and much, much more. And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second and leave us a rating, leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram, at Brian Tome. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.